I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hello! Hi guys, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And welcome to episode 44 of A Tap on the Wrist. 44? What a... I mean, that was a great president. (laughs) It's also close to 50. It's so close to 50, which is... Wild. Amazing. Like, oh, wow. 50 episodes. That's a, that's a milestone. We're going to yeah. have to do something. We definitely do. I feel like since we're an alcohol podcast and we never drink, <laughs> we we have sometimes. But I feel like we should maybe come up with like a special either like 50 episode. I don't know what our 50th episode is going to be, but some kind of themed drink Okay. to celebrate that it's 50 episodes. I'm very into that. And just to clarify... We drink, we just don't drink while we record. Yes. Which is very unlike a lot of podcasts. Like, I find, like, a lot of the podcasts that we're friends with and a lot of podcasts we listen to, it's always like, what are you drinking? And they're, like, drinking when they record, and that's fun. I don't know why. I, like... Well, we used to always record on weeknights before, and we had work the next day. I mean, not that you couldn't have a drink, but I don't know. We just never... I guess we should maybe change that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just start drinking. Yeah. Speaking of drinking, <laughs> Laura and I got to, a couple times this week, go out with friends to have drinks at outdoor at outdoor dining restaurants before, you know, it gets starts to get too cold here in New York. Um, it, it was such a great week of, like, feeling normal. Um, yes, there's still a pandemic happening. Yes, we were socially distant and wore our masks. And, and we're outside. We do indoor. Outside. But it was like we sat down and we chatted with friends and we had cocktails. And there was like a small glimpse of normal life. Yeah, of like what's to come once yeah. the pandemic. So I hope that wherever you are listening to this, you... I, I kind of hope you haven't resumed normal life. Because yes. <laughs> there is still a pretty serious, you know, pandemic in the United States. And around the world. But um, I hope you have those elements of, like, normal life and return to socializing a little bit. I feel like it's good for your mental health just to, like, interact with humans. Yes. Um, And, you know, not over Zoom. (laughs) Yes. Because I I wonder, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen this winter. I know. That's what I'm worried about. That's why, like, I did want to get in some you know, outdoor dining and socially distance hangouts before we're back inside again. Yeah. Before we get locked in again. <sighs> um, but we'll see. We can actually post, we'll post some pictures of our drinks cause they were actually really, we had really beautiful margaritas, um, at a new Mexican restaurant in my neighborhood in, in both of our neighborhoods, <laughs> but like literally on my block. Yeah. It was really cool. Uh, so we'll post pictures of that on our social media. All I've had this week, I've gone out, three times this week and I've only had margaritas girl (laughs) I guess I'm in a tequila kind of mood yeah trying to like hold on to the little bit of summer yeah totally uh anyways but you can find those pictures yes follow Uh, us on social media Uh uh-huh 
on at a tap on the wrist on both Instagram and Twitter. And then you can email us too. Yes, if you want to email us, maybe you have some insight to the Chicago outfit or Al Capone or you have a cocktail suggestion for our 50th episode anniversary. Yes. Uh, send us an email. We are tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Yep. Or maybe you've done some outdoor dining too, and you can send us some of your cocktail pictures. That'd be yeah, fun. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. And I think we're going to, this week, so this week we're starting a brand new part of our podcast. Yep. We're going to be talking about a different gang, not the Chicago outfit. We're going to be talking about the North Side Gang. They sound so friendly. <laughs> the North Side Gang. The North Side Gang. The good old Irish Gang. I feel like they were pretty mixed, but I feel like a good chunk of them were Irish. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we, we've started introducing Al Capone and Torrio and the Chicago Outfit, but we can't tell their full story unless we tell the story of their enemies. Yep. And... Their biggest rivals, their biggest enemies are the Northside Gang. Mm -hmm. So this week we are talking about them. Um, we're really focusing on, there's like one particular neighborhood in Chicago that a lot of these guys grew up in. So I'm going to tell you the story about uh, Little Hell. And I'm going to be telling you a story about a weapon that uh, was very popular among gangsters of that time. Uh, and... It, is very well known, I think, in like pop cult culture. Pop culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Tommy gun. And that was like a topic I never thought that I would be researching, but it was interesting. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Northside Gang and some of their hideouts and not really the hideouts, choices. weapon choices. <laughs> and um, so. Buckle up. We'll be taught. We'll be going to some origin stories as well, but we'll we'll get to that next week. Yes. Enjoy. Enjoy. Okay. Today, we're gonna start off with a little exercise. <laughs> Laura took a deep breath, <laughs> like a deep calming breath, as she started. Because I need you to get into a space with okay. me. Okay. 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 So I'm gonna close your eyes. Okay. And you at home as well. I want this isn't just for Vanessa. If you're listening, unless you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> if you're driving, please keep your eyes open. But I want you to picture your hometown. Okay. Okay. So you've got your hometown. Uh, I want you in your hometown to find your favorite restaurant. Okay. Okay. You've got that picture. Yes. You're probably thinking about like happy things that have happened at that restaurant, delicious food you want to eat. Mm -hmm. um, I want you to think about your favorite memory of your hometown, like something good that happened there. Okay. Okay. So we've got all these good vibes. Great. Mm -hmm. have it. Um, now I want you to think about like the bad part of that hometown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you picture it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and now open your eyes. Okay. So, why is that the bad part? Like, if I tell anyone to picture the bad part of their hometown, you can immediately picture it. <laughs> like, no questions asked, I can picture what that part of my hometown looks like. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of human nature. We have, like, 
places we think of as good and places we think of as bad. And it's whether it's like a reputation or it's a bad memory or it's people, we like are just accustomed to label places. You're absolutely right. As good and bad. Even in our current neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Even here, if you tell me to picture the bad part, I can immediately think of. Yeah. So, in most cases, an area is considered bad because the elite or upper class has labeled it as bad or run down. Yeah. Um, And in many cases, that area is prone to higher crime rates. Mm -hmm. It's often where you'll find lower class citizens. And I hate to say it, uh, it's majority, usually minority and immigrant populations, which in itself is proof of the systematic injustice that we have in this country. But that is not what I'm talking about today, systematic injustice and and racism. Even though I'm sure you can talk about it at length. Just give me a microphone. (laughs) Um, But that is a completely different podcast. However... Today, I am going to talk to you about one of these so-called bad neighborhoods of Chicago. Okay. And this neighborhood comes with a reputation and a shady history and even a nickname that is quite telling. Mm-hmm. And everyone calls it Little Hell. Yeah. Seems, mm-hmm. seems telling. So, some sources in my research call the neighborhood Little Sicily, which is not to be confused with the Little Italy neighborhood of Chicago. So there's Little Sicily and Little Italy. Yes. Okay. And Little Sicily was a much smaller, more dangerous neighborhood of Italian immigrants from around the 1860s until the 1930s. Prior to the Sicilian immigrant population moving in, it was very Scandinavian and European immigrants, um, many like Irish immigrants who had come from the potato famine. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But so this this part of Chicago has always been heavily immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for our season two period of little of it being called Little Hell, it is an Italian neighborhood and it is diverse, but majority Italian, and it was very dangerous. Okay. Okay. I don't know if you're going to talk about this, so if you are, I'm sorry, but wasn't Hell's Kitchen in New York also, like, originally kind of like a heavy immigrant area? Um, Hell's Kitchen was. I don't talk about that. A lot of big cities actually have a hell. Have a hell. <laughs> They say, like, they in a lot of my research, they mention the correlation between this and what's known as Little Hell in London. Okay. Um, I guess there's a lot of parallels as there, there as well, but I focused on just Chicago's Little Hell. Considering the season's about Chicago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, the name of the neighborhood alone, Little Hell, tells us a lot about the neighborhood. Um, and while there are very many... Like, interesting stories that I am going to share today. Well, not very many. I'm I'm telling a few interesting stories. Not a lot is known because it wasn't widely documented. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything was very, like, hush-hush, keep quiet. Newspapers didn't really report the crimes happening. There's just not a lot of information on record. Okay. Um, and so it's a lot of just stories being passed down that happened there. So... Mm-hmm. Take take everything with, like, 
a grain of, you know, maybe it's not a hundred percent accurate because there's only so much like actual documented history. Right. I was going to say it's weird that it's like that there, but like the Levy district had tons of info. Right. I know. So strange. Yeah. So the name Little Hell actually derives because located in this district on Goose Island was a gas house of uh, owned by the People's Gas Light and Coke Company. And at night when this gas company was working, it would cast an unearthly glow on the night sky. And it was said that flames lit the skies at night. And then there was like a roaring thunder from all the furnaces of the gas company. And it just gave off this like eerie glow and this like hot hellish vibe. This reminds me of, and if you don't haunted house, no, (laughs) if you don't live in Astoria Mm -hmm. in Queens, you probably don't even know this happened. But do you remember that time where there like, was it a power plant explosion and there was like a weird glow all through Astoria? Yes. Look it up on Instagram. I'm sure you can find pictures. People thought aliens were coming. Oh yeah. But so this was like nightly, it would like be orangey and more hellish than hellish. Yes. (laughs) And, um, I just, to set it up a little bit, and I'm not super familiar with Chicago, but obviously there's the Chicago River that runs through Chicago, and we are talking the north side of Chicago. Okay. And at one point, the Chicago River does split and create an island in the middle, Mm -hmm. and this island is known as Goose Island, and then we're talking about the mainland part is where little hell is located but it is close to the water and these two areas goose island and little hell have a lot in common so i'm going to mention them both but it's also said that little hell got its nickname not only because of the power plant but also because of the actions that were happening within its blocks Mm -hmm. because it literally had no rules And it was just chaos. It was known as Chicago's first slum, Chicago's first gangster neighborhood. And basically, as one newspaper put it, it was an all-around hellhole in the city. It was full of gangbanging, drug dealing, vice, illegal gambling, and excessive murder. And it all started on the grounds of Little Hell and the neighboring Goose Island area. So I want to talk about Goose Island for a second because when I was researching it, you not being a big... No, I've been thinking about it the whole time. Okay. (laughs) One of my favorite beers is Uh Goose Island beer. And I do know that it is out of Chicago, but I had never really thought about where it got its name. Uh But it is named after this island I'm about to tell you about. Okay. I I literally, so many times, every time you said Goose Island was going to be like, like the beer, but then I didn't want to sound stupid (laughs) if it had no correlation. No, it is 100% (laughs) correlated. So Goose Island actually was full of more Irish immigrants and the majority of them came during the potato famine and the like mass immigration to America during that time. And when they got to America and they set up on Goose Island, 
you know, they lost everything and left everything behind. Mm -hmm. And so they were living in like very tiny shacks on Goose Island. You know, they had cows and chickens and they like kept to themselves on this island. They didn't really venture into like Chicago proper. Okay. Uh, And it was said that they also raised geese and the geese would use the Chicago River as like their breeding ground and it caused so many geese to be born and to like kind of surround this island that that's how the island got the name Goose Island. That to me is terrifying. (laughs) Geese are so rude. I don't like them. I know. Uh, (laughs) And then obviously all of the Italian immigrants move into the mainland section of Little Hell and it's just a very large immigrant population. Uh, blah blah blah. I lost my spot on the page. Okay, here. Here in you're, you're scared thinking about geese. Uh, it's all why. geese. <laughs> so it's on this section in the mainland where all of the Italian immigrants lived is where we see the origination of our black hand gangs. Okay. Which Vanessa talked about in episode two. Throwback. Throwback. And what we do know, you know, we had mentioned when you were talking about it that these were Italian immigrants who were often going after Italian immigrants. And that didn't make sense to me until I did this research. Okay. And then I realized it's like different parts of Italy. These were Sicilian immigrants. The Black Hand Gangs were majority Sicilian immigrants is what I found. And they were extorting like the other Italian immigrants that had come from other parts of Italy who were, like, in the other Italian immigrant neighborhoods. Okay. So, while they were all Italian, it was it's kind of like, you know, an East Coast, West Coast rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, being an immigrant neighborhood, it was very poor, and the immigrants were not only poor but were very dangerous and vicious in this particular neighborhood. The newspapers declared it one of the most turbulent areas full of characters in the city. Saloon fights and stabbings were common in this neighborhood, and it was just like squalor and destitution all about. So the homes are not anything to really write home about. They are (laughs) slum-like conditions. The majority of them were one-story structures. If the family happened to be ambitious, they would attempt to build a second floor that then, like, the first floor could be a store or a saloon, and the family would live above them. But we're not talking, like, the greatest of construction efforts or the best building materials. And in many times, like, homes would, like, collapse and fall apart. Uh, The streets in the neighborhood were short, narrow, unpaved, and very dirty. Uh, Oftentimes, they were nothing more than, like, a lane with, like, the width of, like, one car that could pass by when cars come in to terms. It was just everything was very close, very on top of each other. Um... No, like, just everyone was super, super together. Which is why when I start talking about the crimes that happened in this neighborhood, 
um, it's going to be crazy that no one sees and hears anything because everyone was so close. Supposedly. Yes. So, okay. It was often said that when an older officer wanted had to be punished for their actions Mm -hmm. or if they had a new officer that they were trying to break in at the Chicago PD, they would be sent to little hell for duty. And most officers didn't last more than a week in the neighborhood. Oh, uh, unless they were particularly tough and courageous, they could perhaps survive a month in the neighborhood. But All of this was to say that there were tons and tons of, like, terrible, nefarious acts that took place. And the city was really negligent. Like, they kind of just let it happen because it's like they gave up on the area. They were like, we don't have enough money to really put into that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And unless we can really clean up the whole thing, we might as well not put anything into it. Yeah. It was not a great place to live. So Little Hell began to acquire fame throughout the rest of Chicago. Um, and it was it was really seen as like a place you didn't travel to. Like, mm-hmm. you just didn't go there. Because scarcely a day passed without someone being knifed or shot. It was like just common practice in the streets of this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it was known that many of the men worked at the gas and power plant Uh and with that came this was a weird fact but they wore like heavy construction style boots and it was said that it was not unfrequent to hear of noses being crushed or bodies Uh injured by boot heels i don't know why i could hear the sound i know i'm just like stomping someone's face um and then there's also lots of small stories because what would happen is like in the newspaper they would run like one-liners of crimes Mm -hmm. and so it would be like ears and fingers bitten off by men in this neighborhood It, it was crazy and so they would send police but really because it was more like they they had to like mm-hmm. the police weren't really doing anything yeah in this neighborhood um and there is a newspaper that wrote it said they were known to write about little hell in the newspapers and they described it as a satanic domination that was incorrigible and the police had failed attempts of securing the peace so they were going to just be left to themselves with only the occasional guard of policemen. So was, they were just like, have at it. We're not, yeah. we can't do anything. So because the city had kind of given up, everyone knew it was dangerous and you just shouldn't go there. I'm going to focus on, it's like three quick stories about places and people in this neighborhood. I'm ready. So one corner in particular is called Death Corner. Death Corner in Little Hell. Yes. Death Corner in Little Hell. <laughs> now, I love true crime. I'm not booking an Airbnb on this corner. <laughs> Give me a haunted hotel. I'm not going to Death Corner. Um, so you'd rather be murdered by a ghost. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Death Corner is at the intersection of Oak Street and Milton Avenue, which is now Cleveland Avenue. 
but it was the hangout spot for these black hand gangs. And Death Corner was the, like, central gathering place in Little Hell. Mm -hmm. And it had quite the reputation for being the site of murder. Um, I would have never guessed. More (laughs) so than almost anywhere else in the world. Like, this one corner was known for having, like, more murders than... I guess I, I would say, like, more separate incidents of murder yeah than any other place um and newspapers would have written that victims would be murdered before an audience that then vanished with the last pistol flash much as a loon dives beneath the water just as the hunter's gun spits out its flame so like it would have a crowd of people a fight would break out someone would take out their gun murder someone and everyone would just walk away. And like just a day. Just, just a day. day. And I mean this happened hundreds of times. Wow. There were hundreds of murders on this corner. Yeah. And no one was ever found guilty. It was just like no one talked about it. Police would come and investigate as they had to, right? It's right. A murder. But no one heard anything, no one saw anything, and I just it's so hard because clearly if the area is run by the black hand gangs, you don't want to snitch on them. Right. But also like all of these people being killed and no one pays the price is also hard to kind of stomach and swallow. Yeah. Um, so one of the darkest crimes that has ever been like perpetrated in Chicago happens in this neighborhood and it happened on January 10th of 1875. There is a man named Frederick Ruiz. He's a German immigrant. He was widowed. He's 55 years old and he did live in Northern Chicago and no one really knows why he was on Goose Island that night, but the next morning his body is discovered at eight o'clock by two men who were, um, unloading railroad ties. There's a, there's a railroad that runs. Mm-hmm. And they saw a corpse lying. And when they went over to check it out, they found that the body had been frozen to the ground because it's January and Chicago winters are cold. Brutal. So there's an officer that is nearby and he's notified. He comes and he begins investigating. And what he finds is like straight up like true crime murder glory right like he finds that Frederick has a deep gash um, on the left side of his head that had been made with an axe or a hatchet through the hat on his head like he had a hat on and he was still wearing the hat oh my gosh and so That's crazy. Yeah. He also found during investigation that the head had been almost completely decapitated with a separate kind of knife, not an axe or a hatchet. Jeez. But like a smaller kind of knife. And on his coat were imprints of like a bloody knife blade, which appears that the murderer or murderers, because they believe there were more than one, had, like, wiped the weapon off after they were done. 
Damn. And, like, imagine killing someone and then cleaning your weapon on their clothes. That is just ruthless. Like, yeah. no mercy, no empathy, just completely terrible. I mean, the almost decapitation told me that, but then well, the, <laughs> the wiping, too, is like... Yeah. And so, I mean, they did a full investigation. Uh, Mr. Ruiz was found. He had $96 on him, which was quite a lot of money at the time. And his sons, who were interviewed, believed that he had probably had more money. He was known to, for whatever reason, carry large sums of cash on him. So they think it was a robbery that just went bad. But they left $96? But they left $96 that maybe in a pocket they didn't see or something. I'm not sure. Um, But no one saw anything. No one heard anything. And the murder has never been solved. Damn. So. It's brutal. Yes. But so we're not talking like just accidental like oh my gosh my gun went off and I shot and killed someone like these are like like an axe and hatchet to the head is pretty intense murders yeah another example of the crimes that occurred on death corner are attributed to a man known simply as shotgun man shotgun man yes he was an assassin and spree killer in Chicago in the 1910s and he is known to be the assassin for the black hand gangs so on this corner he shot and killed many people from january 1st to 1910 to march 26th 1911 it said that he killed 15 people on this one corner alone at the discretion of the black hand gangs and in march of 1911 It's reported that within 72 hours, he killed four people. And that's like the end of his killing spree. And then it just, he kind of disappears. I wonder what happened to him. I don't know. Maybe someone else killed him. Maybe. Even though the crimes were witnessed by dozens of bystanders, um, police were never able to identify or capture him. And it's kind of, he was well known in that community. Like it's noted that people knew him. And could recognize him, but they were too afraid of the black hand and, like, revenge if they turned him in. Yeah. So, we don't... Torio took him out when he came. (laughs) We do not know the fate of Shotgun Man. He seems to have disappeared right before Prohibition, um, which kind of makes sense when you talked about the black hand kind of also disappears around that same time. Right. And they just kind of went off. Nobody knows. I'm going to say Torio got to him. Okay. <laughs> That's my theory. By the early 1920s, murders in Little Hell continued at a rate of more than 30 per year, which was more than one-third of Chicago's total murders. And Italians only made up 5% of the population, but they were killing each other in this neighborhood at a much higher rate. Um and then at this point, death corner victims change from being black hand extortionist murders to usually being some kind of gang rivalry between the North and South Side gangs or the different bootlegging gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, one fact that a lot of people noted is that Little Hell was kind of overrun by kind of children who were not being watched thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Parents were working and busy. Children kind of ran the streets, um, and they became one of the cheapest commodities 
in the gang market. It's very easy to go and recruit children to join your gang from Little Hell. Um, and it's actually where the Chicago Irish Mafia and lots of the North Side Italian Mafia are going to be born. They're born on the streets of Little Hell. Mm-hmm. It's the area they grew up in. It's what they know. And so when they're recruited by these gangs, it's almost becomes a better family or a community than mm-hmm. their home life. And it's here in Little Hell where Northside's first great gangster, Dion O'Banion, um, is born. And we are going to talk about Dion O'Banion next week when mm-hmm. we talk about the Northside gang and we get really into their their backstories. He does become one of Al Capone's biggest rivals. Yeah. Um, and he comes from the streets of Little Hell. Mm-hmm. So... It'll help us understand, like, his insight and his thought process, I think, a little bit as we go through this season. For sure. Um, Little Hell, as I've described it, no longer exists. However, there is a neighborhood there. What happens is in 1942, Chicago finally decides to do something about this neighborhood, and they basically tear it all down to the ground. Wow. And they decide to replace what was there, these shanty, run-down apartments and buildings, and provide more project housing for Mm -hmm. lower-income citizens. However, they set the requirements quite high um, at the time. And so many of the citizens who had been living in this neighborhood no longer met the requirements. You had to have like certain criminal records and make a certain amount of money. And so what happens is for about 20 years from the 1940s to 1960s, it's a mainly white population that moves into these like new lower income housing. Um, And they are called the Francis Cabrini Green um, Row Houses. It had 586 units and it was completed in 1945. And they were named after Francis Xavier Cabrini, who was a nun that used to look after the Italian immigrants Mm -hmm. like back in the day. But gentrification happens and white populations move out of this lower income um, as black populations move in. And in the 1960s, the entire area changes drastically And there's lots of crime and social problems that result in these housing projects. And from my research, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you live in Chicago and you can visit, but from what I gather, the current neighborhood known as Cabrini Green um, has quite its own reputation for being notorious and nefarious and violent. Um, And so... It leads me to believe that Little Hell kind of foreshadowed what was to come. There was like that short 20-year period. Sorry, I was I, I know you saw me Googling. I was looking it up because Candyman, the horror movie, definitely takes place there. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, why do I... Why? She was like, every time she says Cabrini Green, it sounds like so familiar. And then I was like, Candyman, and I Googled it. And it does. It takes place in the housing projects of Chicago's Cabrini Green neighborhood. I don't know what Candyman is. It's a a horror movie. Uh, I want to say it came out in like the 80s or 90s. But they're, uh, 
I think it's Jordan Peele is remaking it. Mm. Or making a sequel. I don't know if it's a remake or a sequel. Yeah, Jordan Peele. But, I mean, it just... The, like, Chicago tried to make it, clean it up, and it was a little bit better, like, in the, from the 40s to 60s, but I guess from, like, the 1960s to even modern day, it's mm-hmm. said to have quite a reputation and to be known as one of the tougher, more dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago, which I hate talking about it in that way because it's that way because we talk about it that way and because... Right. We force people into these boxes in America, and it's all a problem with everything that's happening in the world today and what has happened in the world forever yeah. in our country. But um, we should see the new Candyman to see how they portray it. For sure. I mean, <laughs> I know you're not going to want to. No, <laughs> Laura hates horror movies. <laughs> but I mean, I I'm not going to name neighborhoods now. But I mean, there are neighborhoods. In New York City that I would not be comfortable traveling to. Mm-hmm. Based on reputation. Based on and reputation and crime. And, crime and, yeah. and that's terrible that it is that way, but I I want to fix it. Like, if, if anyone has an answer, tell us how to fix it. Just Vanessa and I will fix it. We will, yeah. we will solve the world. <laughs> Since we can't travel right now, we want to share a new podcast that'll take you to hotels around the world. Some you may not want to stay in, but you'll love hearing about their twisted histories. Here's the trailer for Heinous Hotels. podcast about notorious and remarkable hotels for people like me who wanted to have some history, ghost stories, true crime, and urban legends with their travel. Join me on your favorite podcast platform as I explore notorious and remarkable hotels all over the world, from your favorite travel destinations to places you haven't heard of yet. Pack your bags and don't forget your passport. Check in to Heinous Hotels every week on Monday. So today I'm not going to be talking about a person or a gang, but I'm talking about something that is iconic amongst gangsters during the Prohibition era. I'm not going to do the voice, but say hello to my little friend, the (laughs) topic she had done the voice. I know. I like thought about it and I was like, no, I'm going to sound so dumb. I can't. I can't do it. Uh, But the Tommy Gun. uh, It's also known as many other nicknames, but here are some of my faves. The Tommy Boy, the Chopper, the Chicago Piano, Chicago Typewriters, and my personal favorite, the Chicago Organ Grinder. Oh, wow. (laughs) The Chopper? The The Chopper. That reminds me of that TikTok. Like... Never mind. <laughs> I'm not ashamed that I watch TikToks. I do too, but I actually don't know what that one is. So, the Tommy gun is a submachine gun that, to quote a Thrillist article, let gangsters flood the dry, sh- 
streets of Chicago with beautiful alcohol. Oh. And that for better or worse, change the way we shoot stuff. <laughs> I'm going to go for worse. Yeah. I was going to say, full disclosure, I know nothing about guns. I don't really want to know anything about guns besides what I had to research for this. So if I get anything wrong here... I'm sorry. I just, Not really. I, I just have to disclose. I got a text from Vanessa last night that just said, Laura, I know nothing about guns. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited to hear what, what she's learned. There are some parts of this where like, I'm just going to be reading words because I don't know what they mean. I like you. I, I don't know, but it, when we were talking about what we're doing for this episode, I was like, yeah, yeah, Tommy gun. And then I'm looking it up and I'm like, wow, I don't know what any of this means. I don't, <laughs> I, I do not know guns. So the Tommy gun is actually called the Thompson submachine gun. And it was invented by a man named John T. Thompson. Makes sense. He named it after himself. Uh, during World War I in 1918. So a little bit of background info on him since he's the inventor. Thompson was a U.S. Army Ordnance Officer who graduated from West Point in 1882. He rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and was the Chief Ordnance Officer for the campaign in Cuba during the Spanish-American War of 1898. When I was practicing this, I kept saying 1998, so I had a <laughs> <You did get laughs> slow, slow my roll there. Okay. After that, he became, he became the chief of the Ordnance Department's Small Arms Division, where he was instrumental in selecting the 45 caliber cartridge. See, that's one of those things where I don't know what that means. <laughs> but it, that will come up again later, so remember 45 caliber cartridge. Uh, and a fun side fact about how they decided that that was the ammunition that they wanted to choose they would test it out by shooting human cadavers and cattle i've actually heard like i think i've heard of that like that's how they test like in forensics when they're trying to match oh yeah they like bullets bury, and they bury pigs and yeah so, like, decomposition and stuff like that um so that doesn't shock me that much because i think it's the best way to like do trace bullet analyzing yeah isn't like a, a cartridge is like the bullets yeah so this is 40 45 caliber okay go ahead continue uh but i don't know what that means in like comparison to any other type of bullet okay okay so during this time thompson was also oversaw the development of the army springfield's m1903 rifle and the adoption of the colt 1911 pistol by the army I think that's how you say it. I don't know if it's Colt 1911 or Colt 1911. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Thompson retired from the Army in 1914, but continued working with guns as the chief design engineer at the Remington Arms Company. He seems to have just really loved guns and developing guns. If only we could interview him. Yeah. We can interview his ghost. Your cat is going crazy <laughs> with this box. <laughs> I was like, what is that noise? Laura's cat is scratching her face and loving every moment of it on this cardboard box. <laughs> Much like Thompson loved developing guns. Yes. <laughs> that brings us up to the U.S. entering World War I. And in 1917, Thomas was recalled back into service where he was promoted to Brigadier General 
and served as the director of arsenals. And it was during World War I that Thompson noticed a lot of the infantry rifles had really good accuracy at a long range, but a really low rate of fire. And that mixed with the fact that they were typically more than five feet long with bayonets attached to them. I didn't realize we were still fighting with bayonets <laughs> in World War I, but we were. Uh, but that meant that they weren't the best weapon of choice for like close quarter combat because they were so long. And as we know, in World War I, they had a lot of trenches and a lot of fighting in trenches. So, because of this, our friend, not our friend, he invented a terrible weapon. This guy, Thompson, <laughs> came up with the idea for a one-man handheld machine gun or a trench sweeper or trench broom weapon. Are those his words or someone's words? He he can't, he wanted he said the one man one handheld one man handheld machine gun, and I'm not sure if he came up with the term trench sweeper, but that was another name for oh it. Oh my god, that's just yeah. awful to think about. Like yes. someone created this weapon with the purpose of killing as many people as possible. Right. It within a small space. Horrifying. Okay. So Thompson had- Look what you did, sir. <laughs> <laughs> he flooded the streets of Chicago with beautiful alcohol, apparently. I wish everyone could see how I just yelled at the microphone. <laughs> like, like, As if the microphone was Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Thompson- <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Thompson had already begun the plans for autom an automatic weapon in 1916, um, and an early model of the gun was capable of firing 1,500 rounds per minute, which apparently was too much to handle, so he eventually landed on the Tommy gun in 1918, and I'll talk more about what that capability is in a second. Uh, but this is another area where I'm just going to say words. So... <laughs> To aid in his idea, Thompson applied the friction-delayed blowback firing action <laughs> patented in 1915 by a former U.S. Navy officer named Commander John Bill Blish. Thompson bought the rights to this patent, which was based on the adhesion of inclined metal surfaces under pressure. Laura's <laughs> laughing at me. Clearly not knowing what I'm talking about. Uh, or that under great pressure, two different metals adhered better together than two pieces of the same metal. And, like, I kind of get what that means. I don't know what it has to do with guns, but anyway. Is it maybe, like, the metal of the bullet and the metal of the gun? No, it's, like, the actual gun. Like, something about the metal pieces okay. adhering better together if they were made of different metals. Uh, so Thompson apparently thought this was correct, and he applied this by using a small bronze H-shaped block, which fit into the gun steel bolts. So I guess he was using bronze and steel. Uh, and the point of this was to slow the bolts recoil. But according to an article that I read from Popular Mechanics, which I told Laura <laughs> was a source I never thought that I would use for an article, but they were very helpful, uh, this principle wasn't actually correct. Uh, I'm just going to quote them exactly because, again, don't know what I'm talking about. So 
The effect Blish was seeing was that his lock merely added mass to the gun's bolt, which in a blowback gun simply slows the travel of the bolt. So, like, he thought that it had something to do with the two different metals, but really it was just that he made the gun heavier, I guess. Anyway, all that to say that eventually the Thompson would be simplified to create the M1, and this Blish lock was completely done away with because it was unnecessary. But all the articles I read mentioned it because it was part of his early design. So Thompson designed the Tommy gun to boost a superb stopping power and to be chambered for a 45 caliber cartridge, which is the same cartridge used in the M1911 Colt pistol that I mentioned before and which he had played a role in selecting. So he, back in the day, had been like, this is what the army should use, and he still loved it. Still loved the 45 caliber. Um... Thompson developed prototypes of the gun with the company that he started called Auto Ordnance Corporation. So now he owns his own gun creating company. The gun weighed almost 10 pounds when it was nearly empty, or sorry, when it was empty, which I guess is lightweight. I don't know how much guns before that weighed, but I guess 10 pounds was light. And the magazine was either a circular drum that held 50 to 100 rounds or a box that held 20 to 30 rounds. The 20 to 30 round magazine version was originally originally known as the Annihilator, which I feel like you can probably guess why. Oh my god. That's what it was called. It's terrifying. Yes. The ammunition was fed directly into the gun's chamber at a rate of roughly 600 to 725 rounds per minute. And the Persuader, which is what they initially called the early version that delivered the 50-plus rounds, uh, utilized a belt-fed system. Okay. I looked up these bullets. 45 caliber bullets? Yeah. So, like, I feel like in a lot of crime shows you hear, oh, it's a 9mm bullet. So, like, a 45 caliber, it's, like, bigger and wider. Interesting. But it doesn't move as fast. Like, a 9mm bullet will move faster, but this is bigger and wider. It's going to do... More damage. It's going to annihilate more. Well, it's going to do different damage, right? Like, a mm-hmm. faster bullet is going to penetrate right, harder, possibly. Yes. Because of the speed. And I could still be wrong with all of that, but I think that's I'm sh- the difference. I'm sure that you are correct. Tom- Thompson's company described his ultimate prototype as a small machine gun that, quote, will fire 50 to 100 rounds so light that a soldier can drag it with him as he crawls on his belly from trench to trench and wipes out a whole company single-handed. That was their, that was their selling point. Was that their goal? Like, that? I mean, I know war is war, and you can have your own opinion on it, but, like, to wipe out an entire company, like, mm-hmm. it just seems so unnecessary. So brutal. Yeah. Uh... And the Thompson gun did have one drawback, or many if you disagree with its usage, uh, but it had a reduced range in comparison to the other guns that I said had like really good efficiency from far away. So you just had to be up close and personal right. to mass murder people, apparently. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sadly for Thompson, the prototype, what, prototype wasn't done until after World War I was over, and it wasn't patented until 1920. It also wasn't until 1921 that the Thompson submachine gun really began to look like the version that we're probably all picturing in our heads. 
Uh, and though it received positive reviews from both the Army and the U.S. Marine Corps, due to the post-war budget constraints, they didn't buy any. So he like came up with this gun, was like, this is going to be great for war. War ends, and the Army is like, mm, we don't have money, sorry. Yeah. So that's what leads to our friends, the gangsters of the 1920s during Prohibition, making the Tommy gun as popular as it is in today's culture. So because of this rejection from the army, Thompson took the gun to the civilian market because that was a great idea. Uh, he sold it as an anti-bandit gun and claims that it was the safest gun to shoot in city streets. What? what? Yeah. <laughs> How was that allowed? I don't know. I don't know. And the 1920s had no rules. No. Apparently like, not. Imagine if I just like created some weapon and I was like, this will save you from coronavirus. <laughs> Buy it. And like safe to use in the streets. Save you like what? Yeah. The anti-bandit gun? Yeah. And the gun that could take out an entire trench full of men was safe to use in the streets, apparently. Oh my god. It's ridiculous. Uh, however, due to its high price tag at two hundred dollars, the only people who could really afford Tommy guns were in fact criminals. Uh, like John Dillinger and Babyface Nielsen and our friends in the Chicago outfit and the North Side Gang. Uh, the Thrillist article I read compared the price of a Tommy gun to buying a new Ford in 1921, which would have been $400, so the gun was worth like half what you would pay for a brand new car wow. back in 1921. I was going to have you do your calculator. Oh. I just... I could do it myself, but I feel like it's better when you do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get some music to play when I'm typing? Okay, inflation calculator. So, we're in 1921 is a year. Okay, 1921. And we're going to look at $200 and $400. So, $200 would be like $2,900. Okay. So that's how much you would be paying for... So almost $3,000 for a Tommy gun. Yep. And I can get a real fancy purse for that price. And this is in 1920, so like... And then a car at the time would have been 5800 just shy of 6000 Yeah. So, uh... I'll, I want to buy the car at that price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't need a gun that's worth your thousand dollars especially back then or now I don't need a gun ever anyway <laughs> the gun would eventually become so popular among Chicago gangsters that you would be able to walk into any Chicago hardware store and buy or rent one you could rent one for the day <laughs> what <laughs> just want to rent a Tommy gun for the day don't ask questions <laughs> don't ask questions I just want to bring it to show and tell like what Tommy gun that you're renting. I know. I know. Oh my goodness. So safe. <laughs> Just wear gloves. <laughs> uh, and the Tommy gun would notoriously be used during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which you can bet your bottom dollar that we're going to be talking about in another episode. Uh, but just as a little teaser, so much damage was done by these guns that the coroner reported the victims were basically ripped apart by bullets. 
which is horrible. Anyway, besides gangsters, mm -hmm. the U.S. Postal Service also joined in <laughs> on the fun. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny to me. I mean, support the USPS, but... Uh, they ordered 200 Tommy guns to arm their personnel and protect the mail from thieves. What was happening in the 1920s to post Like, workers. I was thinking, I was like, I know Stagecoach Mary had to, like, defend this throwback to season one, had to defend the mail, but, like, this is now in the 1920s. Like, people were still trying to <laughs> steal people's mail? I don't... Does that happen? I mean, I yes, I know people steal people's, like, packages. Yeah. But, like, are postal workers often attacked that they would need to defend themselves with a Tommy gun. I I I need someone who knows a postal worker to contact us. Yeah. Because I need to know if they ever feel the need to carry a weapon. Yeah. Um I thought this thought that was very interesting. Uh and it was also used among police and federal agents. Uh however Though some police departments did privately buy Tommy guns, it wasn't until 1935 that the FBI finally purchased a large order for themselves, uh, and apparently in custom cases, because we got to keep it classy. Um, and as Pop Popular Mechanics notes, ironically, by then the majority of gang members and gangsters the FBI had been tasked with stopping had either been killed or captured. It's 1935, so right. like, they ordered them a little too late. Uh, movies of the time, however, would paint the picture that Tommy guns were heavily used by the G-Men and not criminals. Though they originally showed the Tommy gun being used by gangsters, in 1935, a set of guidelines called the Motion Picture Production Code attempted to deglamorize outlaws. So this meant that gangsters could no longer be seen with automatic weapons in movies, only the good guys could be shown using them. And it kind of caused, like, glamorization of the G-Men. Obviously, that changed again because... Right. And then something bad happened. Or good, depending on who you are. I say good. Thompson probably says bad. In 1934, the National Firearms Act happened, which prohibited the use of automatic and concealable weapons by civilians in the U.S. And that clearly hurt the Tommy gun biz. So... Eventually, the company was over $2 million in debt and was on the brink of liquidation. However, can you guess what happens next? The law changes? World War II. Oh, yeah, yeah. Duh. So, World War II basically saved the Tommy gun because it was used by both the U.S. and British armies. The U.S. military formally adopted the Thompson in September of 1938, and by February of 1942, half a million Thompsons had been made, 100,000 of which were sent to the British armies in April of 1942. But sadly for Thompson, he didn't live to see that happen because he died in 1940. So he never got to see his gun being used the way he originally intended in war. Mm. I'm not, I'm not that sad about it. I'm not that sad about it either, but it is interesting that, like, he would die right before the success that he had always envisioned. Right. As opposed to gangsters using it in the street. Right. So, while the original fully automatic Thompsons are no longer produced... Oh, oh darn. Oh, darn. 
According to Thrillers in 2015, a real fully automatic <laughs> M1 Thompson could cost anywhere from $15,000 to $30,000 before taxes, depending on the condition, year, and documentation. And like, honestly, who needs to spend that much on a gun? I, it's beyond me. But anyway, that is the history of the Tommy gun, which will play a huge role in the gang wars between the Northside gang and the Chicago outfit, ultimately culminating, as I said, in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So my sources were the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Thrillist article I mentioned called 13 Things You Didn't Know About the Thompson, Thompson Submachine Gun by Maxwell Barna, and most heavily, Thank you and a huge shout out to an article called The Tale of the Tommy Gun from Popular Mechanics by Matthew Moss. Like so much credit to him because this was like all basically from him. Like I wouldn't, it was a great article. And I didn't say Wikipedia. Oh, you didn't use the I people didn't, source? I didn't use the people source. I'm trying to be good and use like real sources, guys. <laughs> I, um, for my story on Little Hell, used three major sources. I used a Chicago Tribune article. Um, I'm going to click on this link because it was called Life Was Tough on the Island Called Little Hell. And then I used a document that was actually really interesting. It was like a PDF four-page document that I had uh -huh. to download, but it was from um, the Living History of Illinois and it was all about the Little Hell neighborhood. And then on Chicagoology.com, they have a section about Little Hell. And I got all of these different stories and compiled them together. Because every, every source has, like, one section on yeah. Little Hell. Um, so those are my sources. Awesome. So now we know where the Northside gang is coming from. We know their weapon of choice. Now we just have to find out who they are. Yep. Tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are talking origin stories of the Northside gang next week. Mm -hmm. And that's going to lead us right into these, like, heavy rivalries that everyone thinks of when they think of. Right. The bootlegging, the yeah. prohibition, it's all finally coming together uh, to, as Laura said, the stories that everyone kind of knows or thinks they know. Right. All right. If you want to see pictures of the Tommy gun, pictures of Little Hell, we are going to post them on social media. Yes. We're on Instagram and Twitter, at Atop on the Wrist. And you can also email us if you have any information about this, you know, period in Chicago's history or... If you know a USPS worker and can answer oh, yes. our questions. Oh, yes. Please email us, tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. And like we've asked before, please rate, review, and subscribe. It's very helpful. It's honestly the most helpful. It is. It really, it really is the most helpful. We love the likes on Instagram. We love talking on Twitter. But... Every review on Apple Podcasts is super helpful in getting yes. more people to find our podcast and us continuing to grow. And so tell a friend, write a review, tell them to write a review. Yes. And if you don't have an iPhone, I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. Find someone that doesn't make them do it. <laughs> yeah, just borrow a friend's iPhone yeah. and write the review from their account. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everyone knows a person who owns an iPhone. <laughs> All right, guys. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Cheers.